This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You said thank you for, for having me back on. Um, I always tell everyone this. this is, I have no boss. There's, this is a one-man team. So if I invite someone on, it's because I want you on. I don't, there's no one saying, I think you should have on this guy. I think you should do X, Y, and Z. No, if I don't want someone on, I just, I'll ghost them. I just don't talk to them anymore. I don't care. But you're an awesome guy. And your book, um, Under Fire, the untold story of uh, what happened to Benghazi, which is on Audible, will be in the description and uh, sticking in the top comment. The one thing that really got me more than anything, just because I get interested in odd things, is just how fortress-like embassies are. I had no idea. Yeah, Tommy, that's a, you know, there's a long backstory of tragedy leading to the fortress-like atmosphere surrounding uh, U.S. embassies. And and actually, from a historical perspective, uh, it goes back to uh, the 1983 and 1984 embassy bombings in Beirut and Kuwait, which led to uh, what was then called the Inman Commission. And that was chaired by one of my mentors, uh, Admiral Bobby Ray Inman, who mm-hmm. teaches at the University of Texas at Austin. And Admiral Inman chaired a commission where he evaluated a, a lot of different variables with embassy security from chain of command to accountability to physical security standards pertaining to Uh, what kind of measures are in place. And uh, that's really become kind of a watershed moment in physical security as it pertains to U.S. embassies. Now, what happens over time, like any other bureaucracy, is workarounds. And if you look at Benghazi as an example, that was a special mission compound, and they had waivers which waived all the security requirements because of the needs of the foreign service. So what happens in any kind of bureaucracy is over time, their workarounds do develop because the construction of a, to use your words, fortress-like atmosphere around a U.S. embassy is it takes an extraordinary long period of time and the physical security standards are just uh, over the top, but over the top for the purposes of saving lives. Yes. So would you say that if we could draw an analogy, um, Black Hawk Down, obviously what happened, Gothic Serpent, what happened to Mogadishu, is is it analogous to these these special compounds? Is almost like, I'm sure you've seen the movie, right? Black Hawk Down or read the book. The Rangers are going out and they're, grabbing their NVGs, their night vision goggles. And it's, we'll be back. Don't wor- don't bring your water. Don't. It's not important. And it's almost like that special waiver of like, we don't need all of this. And then, of course, the one time you need it all is the one time you don't have it. Is that what this was? Is on, on, a, on a much bigger scale instead of a one-time operation and night vision goggles, instead it was the construction of this entire thing. 
and they didn't do all of it because it's, you know, metaphorically, we'll be back in 10 minutes. Yes. Uh, in, in essence, if you and Black Hawk Down is a very interesting kind of uh, analogy as you look at Benghazi is the, you know, the one thing that I've learned over the course of my professional career is that when things go bad, they usually go bad catastrophically and, and extraordinarily very quickly, meaning there's there's a series of domino effects that kick in. And much like Black Hawk Down, uh, which was a great movie, uh, by the way, uh, but uh, Benghazi, in, in many ways, when you look at that in retrospect, is is a, a challenge because of a couple different reasons. One, uh, the intelligence stream leading up to the actual attack. Uh, point two is by Vienna Convention, it's the host nation's responsibility to protect foreign diplomatic facilities, which is problematic in an area when you don't really have a stabilized uh, host national force to protect facilities. And then mob violence historically has always been extraordinarily difficult to protect against, much like we saw on January the 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, if you talked about, yeah. Yeah, if you look at mob violence historically, uh, you can think of, just for the benefit of your listeners and watchers of this, is in 1979, we had mob violence attack in Islamabad, Pakistan, where the U.S. Embassy was overran. And in 79, obviously, most people most vividly recall the U.S. Embassy seizure in Tehran, where a good friend of mine, Al Golazinski, was one of the regional security officers there in Tehran, and the embassy was overran, and he ended up being held hostage uh, during the entire uh, time frame that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard held our diplomats. So protecting against mob violence is extraordinarily difficult when you have host nation security breakdowns yes. or you have a police department that's not ready and prepared with an overwhelming force to combat that as as evidence of what we saw at the u.s capitol yeah yeah so so i was there and i i just i wanted to go and i wanted to see everything I re, i'd never been to dc and I, I recorded all of it youtube took it down but i recorded all of it and i have i have several hours um i had never seen anything like that to where it's 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 I use this analogy a lot when talking about technological development. Uh, um, futurist Ray Kurzweil, who's been the scientific advisor, I think it was Reagan, Clinton, Bush, and a little bit of Obama. He always talks about um, how when technology develops, like cell phones, keyboards, text or speech to text, um, it's a lot like a tsunami. In that, for ninety nine percent of the tsunami's life. It exists as this mound moving across the open ocean that unless you're specifically looking for it from, you know, geospatial satellites or buoys or whatever, you don't know it exists. Obviously, with our technology, we do know it exists. The world doesn't know until it the last 0.1% of its life and it's when it crashes, right? And that's what I saw, right? It, to the point where it was boring. Like I went to a hotel after because it was it was just like, oh, OK, you know, it's cold. Some of the people I was with are cold. 
as everyone that watched this podcast knows, I have a weak bladder. So it's like, I want to go back. But the point of me saying all of that is, is it did at the very end. You can just, it just happens. People start running up and it just, it all happens like very quickly. And it's obviously, yeah, if you want to truly defend against something, right, you would, you know, if you wanted to, you'd open fire. But you have all these stipulations like, you know, it's the U.S. Capitol or a host nation with their own laws to where you can't just do that and you can't have an overwhelming force to react. And that was, I mean, that was one of the, if not the most wild thing I'd ever seen in my life was how quickly it can happen. And mob violence, it's like, how do you protect against it? And it's, and I think what we're seeing right now um, with the security beefing up in D.C. is that's the really only way you can prevent it. Would you say that's correct? Well, I think you prevent uh, mob violence with a couple of physical security kinds of uh, standards, meaning uh, you do have to have adequate phys- physical security and safe havens and, and structures that can protect and can be locked down and how they can be sealed. And then, but if you wind back that clock, it also comes with a a high degree of intelligence that you have to have with warnings and indicators that violence potentially could be planned. Rarely, rarely is it spontaneous to to some degree, but um, there, there has been times that you do have that mob violence, the the mob mentality that kind of overruns a, a, a location. But uh, when, when you start looking at just protection of a protected target, such as the special mission compound in Benghazi, or the U.S. Capitol, for that matter, or, yeah. or any other structure, sure. uh, it, it does take a standing force of police officers or security service personnel on standby and on the ready to be able to counter any kind of mob violence that starts to unfold. And, you know, unfortunately, what you saw in a place like Benghazi was when you don't have a nation state security service, which by Vienna Convention is required to protect a foreign diplomatic mission, uh, or if everybody scatters once there's the sign of violence, or in some cases where you might have waiting assistance or cooperation by nation forces to allow events to unfold, it's just very problematic. And so, but the, you know, the protection against mob violence is one of the more daunting challenges in the diplomatic space when it comes to just protection of facilities you know, all around the globe. And it's it's one that at least the State Department has learned the hard way and has gotten very good at protecting facilities because of those standards that are in place that, uh, you know, allows them to hunker down and, and wait for help until that mob violence kind of scatters and, you know, breaks away. Yeah. Um, in, in your book, you talk about, well, there's kind of two aspects of it, right? It's it almost seems like the state's apathy, right? Where it, it kind of sounds like there's almost people just drinking tea, watching, you know, like oh, you know, look at them go. They're overrunning the capital. It's just it's like watching a sunset. Not to not to paint everyone with a broad brush, but 
or like you talked about the, I believe it was an Italian uh, ambassador drinking, you know, at a seat in the cafe as this thing's being lit on fire and the guy's crawling out of the window and the AK bullets are popping by his head. It is there, is there, I mean, is, is, is this question that I'm about to ask, is it just answered by what you said earlier? This one had kind of special waivers, but it seems like they had a pretty low tech uh, solution to this first world nations, high tech uh, compound. And it was just light everything on fire. Like, is, is that, can that be used to just negate anything? Just light it on fire? Yeah, fire as a weapon is something that, um, at least in modern history, from the, the protection of diplomatic facilities, is something that we first experienced in 1979 in Islamabad at the U.S. Embassy there when an, a mob overran the uh, diplomatic facility and, and set it on fire. Now, hold that thought, Tommy. Okay. That was 1979. Okay. okay, fast forward to Benghazi. And fire as a weapon is something that we were not trained to protect against. Now, granted, you could say we should have and could have going back to the 79 model in Islamabad. But I can tell you that when I went through basic agent training, we never trained under those kinds of circumstances where you know, a building's lit on fire and, and you learn how to cover and evacuate or you learn how to protect yourself. Having said that, there there are some tools that you do have, such as smoke hoods mm-hmm. that you can put over your head to buy you time. And And so, you know, from a human failure standpoint, obviously those were not deployed, those were not there in order to be able to hunker down and wait out the smoke and the fire, which was human error. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were not checked. Nobody nobody thought to look to see that they had those in the safe havens. Having said that, nobody had intelligence to indicate that the special mission compound would be specifically overran and set on fire. Yeah. So so you're back to that same kind of problem of if you and I are game boarding potential events, what are the most probable? Yeah. And then what do we have in our protection toolkit in case those kinds of events start to unravel? Yeah. And it the other thing I was thinking was um was what you know what seems like a safe room, right? ran in sealed the door shut and put the you know the the water-filled rags under underneath well that was that was that was was different but regardless they went in there but it was very quickly like they just turned it and kind of turned it into a blast furnace they right they just lit everything they went in destroyed everything which created a bunch of combustible pieces almost like brush on the ground and then just lit it and let it go and start cooking them is now obviously there's a you know, there's a match of, of price and security versus like the White House or something. You you wouldn't spare a penny, or you sorry, yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't worry about the cost. Whereas you can't, you know, with every compound, with every uh, embassy, you can't go all out. That being said, I, I I imagined, or at least in my kind of OCD mind, I imagined you would have that safe room, and I, I don't know, you would just it would have almost like Apollo spacecraft. You'd have like self like cycling air. You would, bulletproof right why might what excuse me might as well make that also a skiff you know just put it all kind of a one-stop shop go down there 
and you can burn down the thing around you and you survive. But is that is that feasible or is it at a certain point you just kind of have to have like a quick reaction force and then just also have intel to hope that you can predict a mob? Well, you would love to have a comprehensive umbrella solution okay. with a little bit of every every piece that you touched on, meaning you would have uh, enough physical security in place to prevent that from occurring. And then, God forbid, if the place is set on fire, that you would have rapid uh, ex- extinguishers, whether that be through sprinklers and, and other kinds of suppression devices to, to knock that out. Uh, but, you know, it, it all boils down to usually, in my experience in investigating these kinds of attacks, uh, the, the intelligence aspect is lacking uh, specifically. Uh, and then those physical security standards are usually defeated in some capacity. And if you look at, you know, um, the events leading up to Benghazi, one would have to certainly question in, in retrospect, what are you even doing there on the anniversary of September the 11th to begin with? And that gets back to the chief emissions authority, which, um, uh, He, Ambassador Stevens in this case, is the president's representative to that country. And uh, at the end of the day, the the buck stops there. The accountability aspect rests with him as the most senior representative in country. And uh, so if you if you look at that just in, in in retrospect, you know, there's certainly a lot of protective security failures. There's protective intelligence failures. There's uh, inadequate emergency action plans that were in place in order to carry out a rescue. But in, in, in many ways, Tommy, the Foreign Service has always been that way, meaning uh, you, you, you are consistently in these places that are a day or two away and even with our U.S. military footprint all around the world, in some places better than others, it still takes a while to get there. And if you look at the speed of how these events unfold, there, there just simply isn't enough time, unlike in the movies, for Delta Force to swoop in and, and save everybody. Now, having said that, you know, I think there has to be some common sense and practical kind of evaluations that takes place in a lot of these kinds of attacks. Meaning, if you look at Benghazi and you think about the quick reaction force that was not that far away, namely the CIA team that was on standby to help, those are pretty good backup personnel that you have that can get to you very quickly. And certainly on the days, on the day of this event unfolding, their actions were heroic in getting to the compound and, and helping rescue everybody that was there. So, you know, that's just the perils at times, I think, of being in the Foreign Service at some of these outposts where you don't have a stabilized security and law enforcement in, in, in country to be able to prevent these kinds of events from unfolding. Yeah. And it, and by the way, let me know if this is too loud. I just pulled the microphone a lot closer. Um, for everybody listening, I'm, 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 this is a trial by fire figuring out how to use this microphone, but 
it it does seem like there almost does seem to be like a tragic parallel between uh, Benghazi and Mogadishu. Obviously, completely different things, but I mean, just for starters, it's just you know we can't seem to find an AC one thirty gunship. <laughs> Seems like that's always a problem. Is there's never one close enough. And then it's also, right, it's optics, the Marines leaving, and it's no get off, change into civilian clothes. It can't look like the Marines are invading, right? Again, it's the optics. It's no, you know, what's the line from Black Hawk Down? Washington, in all of their infinite wisdom, has denied you, like, close air support and, like, Abrams tanks. Where is that? I mean, now, am I just, you know, slowly learning something that's probably as certain as death and taxes that, you know, the home base, the headquarters, whether it's Moscow, Beijing, or Washington, there's always going to be just that almost stereotypical trope of like, you know, the the main bureau thinks that you shouldn't do this because they're looking at much bigger chess pieces versus the guys on the ground that are like, I, like I need air support. Is that is that just a thing that's probably destined to be part of like humanity until the end of time? Just that kind of friction between the the upper, the higher ups and the, the guys on the ground, you can't have AC one thirties, get off the plane, change into civilian clothes, get back on. Is that, is, will that always just be a problem? Yes. I, I would like to say that, uh, uh, on, and on a practical level that, that, uh, that would not be the case, but, uh, I, I've long since given up hope that optics and perception doesn't matter and optics and perception of events do matter and especially when in in the in the course of foreign policy when americans are stationed in in these outposts around the globe and that literally your your closest help is an aircraft carrier away or if you're lucky you know the next nation away but um, it just shows you much like all security events or crime or attacks that once events start to unfold at times there's this lull of unintended consequences and kind of a domino effect where events just cascade into these tragic circumstances and they're manifested especially when you don't have help that is right around the corner i mean let's face it we we are blessed in this nation to have uh wonderful police and law enforcement response capabilities fire and ems and then wonderful uh standards that are in place such as fire code and building code and sprinklers that for the most part doesn't exist, Tommy, in the third world where you have buildings without sprinklers. I mean, would that have made a difference? Well, hell yeah, it would have in a place like Benghazi. Yeah. You know, so that that's part of the challenge too. But, you know, it, it it's always been that way in the foreign service. Yeah. Yeah, that, that could just write like my mind thinking, how come, where are the sprinklers? Where's the fire department? Why didn't you call the cops? And it's like, that might just be me projecting my the only thing I've ever known, a first world, America. I think I flew over Canada once for like an hour. Like only known, you know, the land of milk and honey. Me saying where's all that stuff, that might be no different than like, you know, first class on the Titanic, you know, talking to someone from the lower class and be like, oh, just get the help to do it. And they're like, what is the help? 
right? It's like that doesn't exist over there. So that just might does that all just come with the territory? Like if we're gonna go have basically an an embassy or as they say, right, the secret CIA base, which the the native taxi driver knew. Oh yes, the secret base. And it's like, oh well shit, it's not that secret. Is that just so what I want to get to is I was thinking about how like the stock market, they're I don't think they're literal circuit breakers, but I know that there's there's something put in place that they call circuit breakers. And it's for it's for when you st- the stock market starts to slide cataclysm cataclysmically. Uh, an, uh, a Great Depression, a 2008, they have things that shut down. So it's like, you know, so we don't have this this panic sell-off where in a lot of ways you could almost say that like these big, big days, right? You know, Black Thursday and in whatever day it was in 2008 when everything starts to, you know, fall. I don't just mean a random day where it's like, oh man, honey, the market really slouched today. I mean like the days we learn about in history, Great Depression, Great Recession, could you draw an analogy, or you can draw an analogy, between those cataclysmic days where it starts to slide, and we have, in a way, learned, sure, once it already slides, you have to do things like get everyone back to work, right, FDR, right, you, ha- you have to tarp the bailout funds, you got to get it right now, COVID, the stimulus checks, like, we know what to do afterwards, and you could say that stimulus checks or you know, relief or social security, those are kind of like a quick reaction force. We know how to call them in, right? We know how to call in the 10th Mountain Division or the Malaysians in uh, Mogadishu. We know how, you know, how to call in this in uh, Benghazi. But is it better to, before that even happens, sort of have the equivalent of the circuit breakers where it's, I don't know what it would be. I mean, again, as a 30-year-old with no experience in any armed conflict and with a biology degree, that being said, could you have something that somehow detects crowd movement? Is there like a general, are there telltale signs that only a supercomputer could see and love, but would be able to notice it quickly? Like, Hey, it's starting to happen. And like in that moment, I don't know, like have like a reinforced wall rise up or something or tear gas or flashbangs or whatever, or maybe you preemptively call in a quick reaction force. I know this is a really long and drawn out analogy, but in, in conclusion, would you, is there anything that could be implemented that is more like shut the market down early, everyone go home and let's let's get back to this tomorrow versus allowing it to slide into a Great Depression? The Great Depression being uh, Mike Durant being taken hostage or the men of Benghazi being killed and overrun. Is there a way to you see it early and it's like preemptively you sort of pop smoke and raise up the extra barriers or am I just – Am I being an armchair bureaucrat and telling you how to how it's done? In reality, it's much more complicated than that. Well, I think you've kind of touched on uh, Benghazi and and in many ways, like most people feel. Meaning, uh, but to answer your question, there are tripwires that the State Department consistently monitors in concert with the intelligence community to look at those rise, those rising warnings and indicators of your threat streams. Now, one could certainly argue that in Benghazi, it was kind of like the frog in the boiling pot yeah. where you have a destabilized government, inadequate security forces, a rising threat stream, and then Uh, a lack of specific intelligence to say we're going to overrun this mission on this day and our efforts are going to be 
focused on either kidnapping or attacking the United States ambassador to Libya. So there, there, there are those variables that, believe it or not, are in place for that to be monitoring all the time, Tommy. But you get back to the needs of the foreign, you know, the needs of the foreign service, foreign policy considerations, uh, what's in America's interest on any given day. Uh, you know, we're in a lot of dangerous places around the world every day. And uh, if you start looking at just violence against Americans overseas, you can certainly pick out certain flashpoints and hot points where it's more probable for violence than than not. And there's a fair amount of threat assessments that are that are always constantly being worked looked and worked at. You know, but at the end of the day, the buck stops at the United States ambassador to that respective nation. And, and there are measures that kick in, Tommy, meaning uh, if the threat stream gets so bad or COVID gets so bad, do you start reducing your footprint in that country? You start sending people home. You start sending dependents home. You start sending non-essential personnel home. And you really kind of draw down uh, before an embassy becomes under siege. And, you know, the State Department, for the most part, tries to do that all the time and tries to get that right. The, the challenge in, in, in the world space when you're looking at this is usually geography really matters. Your ability to depend upon the host country truly matters, meaning their capability to protect official American diplomats or any diplomats predicated upon the Vienna Convention. So, you know, one could look back on that and say, well, why are we there to begin with? Well, there was foreign policy considerations made that we needed to be there. Yeah. Now, you could sit back and argue that you disagree with that. You don't think that's right. Regardless, a decision was made to be in Libya. And Ambassador Stevens decided he wanted to be in Benghazi that day. Yeah. And... You know, that's where, at the end of the day, there is that law of unintended, unintended consequences and being in the wrong place at the wrong time when things really go south. The, the problem in this business is when things go south, they really go south badly. Yeah. And your help is usually a long way away yeah. that takes a long time to get there. So I have like two simplistic, I guess, and when I say simplistic, I mean that as an insult to myself because I know this is just, you know, it's sort of like the, well, if we have poor people, why don't we just print money? You know, it's like, well, yeah, you know, why don't we all hold hands? Like, you know, a lot of things that should be done that won't be done because of human nature is I would, so that being said, in my mind, I look at it as like, you know, what are those, the CIWS, CWIS, the, the anti-missile, you know what I'm talking about? The chain, mm-hmm. chain guns on ships. For everyone that doesn't know, look it up, CIWS. It's just it's, it's an amped up Gatling gun that shoots down incoming anti-ship missiles. I feel like as a fail-safe, like, yeah, it would be a diplomatic nightmare. But at that point, it's kind of like what you said in your book about, you know, choosing who to shoot. It, it comes down to the individual. And ultimately, it's 
you can choose to shoot and then you have to deal with the consequences in the morning or you can be, you know, have the politically safe move and not shoot and then be killed. And it's, you know, it's, well, you did the right thing, but you're dead versus like, you know, I'd rather be judged by six than or judged by 12 than carried by six. All that to say, man, I feel like you just want to put one of those things on the roof and just train it at the front. Like, and like if all else fails, it's like, if you need it, it's kind of like nuclear weapons. Why do we need thousands? Because if you need one, you're probably not in a good place. So you want to have more. It's like, yeah, it would be a nightmare. But if it's already a nightmare, then it seems like something's gone, like you said, catastrophically wrong. I don't know. I just feel like you'd want like a <laughs> just a, a chain gun to just mow people down. And it's very easy for me to say that sitting in an air conditioned or a heated room in a you know a first world nation. But right. I mean, the 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 crashed Blackhawk, Mike, uh, Mike Durant's crashed Blackhawk, uh, the two Delta Force snipers who were killed uh, defending him and who both received the Medal of Honor. But, the, the, you know, they couldn't activate the the mini guns on either side of the crash bird because it required electricity and obviously it was all dead. But it's like, man, that could have been a completely different story. And I know I'm rambling, but does is that does that make any sense that, like, if all else fails, just kind of have like an just a wall of lead? Because it seems like once it's all done, it's like you're already crawling out of broken windows, vomiting up suit with with AK-47 bullets flying past you and smoke coming under like they clearly like all is lost. Right. Well, you get back to it, the, the job in the Foreign Service, meaning at the end of the day, it's a host nation's responsibility to protect all official Americans and all official diplomats in that country. Yeah. So much like we protect diplomats here in the United States, the Secret Service Uniform Division in D.C., the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service, the New York City Police Department and diplomatic missions in New York and so forth. So when you have a failure of the host nation to protect that diplomatic footprint of any sort or American diplomat, that's when things usually break down and they break down very badly. So then what happens is my old outfit at the state department has to have these extraordinary physical security measures in place as kind of the last mile, the last hope to be able to hunker down and wait for help from somebody. And then when you look at the special mission compound Benghazi, that's pretty much just a villa on the side of a road that lacks those kinds of physical security standards to be able to hunker down and wait for help. It's almost a perfect storm for events to unfold. And it, it gets back to the mission of the Foreign Service where we have brave diplomats scattered around the world that's out and about doing their job. But there there does come a time when you are putting yourself in harm's way. You're, you're traveling from that fortified facility to a meeting. You're vulnerable with motorcades. You're, there's a lot of vulnerability that comes into route planning and so forth. But, you know, so all of this, Tommy, it has led me to believe in this business that I've been in since 1981 that unfortunately, after a lifetime of doing this, 
it usually takes tragedy to force change. Yeah. And you could sit here and talk about it till we're blue in the face about, well, why is that yeah. required? Why doesn't people think about that? Yeah. It just doesn't happen until tragedy unfolds. And then the government does a very good job of course correction and fixing those kinds of problems. And, you know, the, the State Department has done a wonderful job since Benghazi at training those agents to protect when a building set on fire and, and so forth. So, you know, again, um, why does it take tragedy to force change? I don't know. If you can figure that out, you know, uh, okay. let me know what you come up with. But yeah. typically that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's um, it's what is it? It's safety guidelines or or written in blood, right? It's like, that's how it always happens. Yeah, I get it. And for everybody listening, I'm, I'm sorry we're not necessarily going into the events of Benghazi itself, but I, I feel like that's been kind of covered so many times. I wanted to sort of take a, a different look at it and kind of get into the, the generals of, you know, of safety there. Um, but yeah, like what you said, um, it's, uh, it's the, the host nation's uh, security service. It's their... It's their responsibility. Yeah, I guess w- where I'm looking at it from is, you know, it's the police. It's the response. It's the responsibility of my neighbor to not break into my house and kill me. It's the responsibility of the police to stop them if they try. But ultimately, you know, I'm going to have a shotgun. I'm not going to wait for them to get here. I hope they get here in time. But you know, I'm gonna. I I'm going to assume no one's going to help me, and hopefully, it doesn't come to that. But I feel like that's how, you know, I, I guess I look at it is I would assume that no one's coming to help because when they don't come to help, that's when we get horrible, horrible outcomes like this. And you know, like you said, we can sit here and talk about what should have done and, you know, what we should have done. And there should have been anti-aircraft or should there should have been a SAM site on top of the, you know, the Statue of Liberty to shoot down the planes that went to the World Trade Center. It's like, yeah, you know, someone should have also killed Hitler when he was a baby. Like, you know, it's very easy to look back at it. Um, and I know I've got you for five more minutes. Um, in the same way that, and this might be, be beyond the scope of this conversation and it's 100% speculation, but in the same way that, that drones have completely changed the way we interact in foreign lands, whether it be in, uh, Qatar, or Yemen, or anywhere in the Middle East, just being able to, you know, hit something with a hellfire missile do you think that that same potential or future maybe it's an inevitable future does that exist to have drones on the ground and i know it doesn't necessarily need to be like some star wars drone but whatever is is that a future and maybe it's in 10 years maybe it's in 20 years is that a future where something like that would exist on the grounds of an embassy or a special compound. It's, you know, break glass in case of emergency, you know, press red button in case of overrun. And because right, we can amplify forces by putting in predator drones and reaper drones. We don't necessarily have to have a pilot there. Did the pilot sleep well? Is the plane gassed up? Has his oxygen, blah, blah, blah. Has his fuel. You can just have a predator drone. And then when it's getting ready to end, you have a new one en route and, you know, the you never break the chain is that a future of just 
the equivalent. If 50 years ago you had talked about the Predator and the Reaper drone, they'd look at you like you're, you know, like you're high. But that it's now a, it's a reality. It's an old reality now. Is that a reality in the future for things like the State Department? Just it would be whatever the equivalent is of a drone on the ground. I don't know what it would look like. I don't know if it's, you know, as tall as me. Is it a human? Does it even need to take on the human anatomy? But just something that you don't have to wait for, like you said in your book, SEAL Team 6 or the CIA Special Activities Division or Delta. Like you said, you know, everyone thinks Delta is just going to come breaking through the door. And it's like there's a lot more than that, right? It's Is it a carrier fleet? Is it a – I know I'm, I'm rambling on and on again. But do you think that's a, a potential future? I do. I think technology solutions have always been not only for American national security purposes – whether it be the you know the creation of the stealth bomber or for that matter even the M16 when you start looking at innovation and technology that certainly is something that's always on the forefront when it comes to physical security measures and you know certainly the deployment of small little drones perhaps in retrospect would have been uh, a fascinating kind of uh, exercise to think about in Benghazi uh, having said that when you start looking at some uh, more uh, simplistic measures that, that certainly would have made a big difference, uh, smoke hoods, if, if all the agents had had smoke hoods and they could have put one on Ambassador Stevens to, to just buy some time uh, to the fires and the, and, the, and the chemicals all burn out of the building. Uh, you know, that certainly would have made a big difference. So, uh, but, you know, in, in fairness to uh, the the agents that were there, uh, you know, they have right down the road a quick reaction team from the CIA. And, and those folks are pretty darn good. And, you know, you have backup close. You know, perhaps you don't have the physical security that you would like, but you're trying to do the best you possibly can predicated on the circumstances. And I think it's been my experience, Tommy, in in this business, even if you look back at some of the more catastrophic embassy attacks over time, uh, you know, it usually boils down to those kinds of basics, even going back to, you know, the U.S. embassy seizure and and when the, in Saigon in 68, uh, Tehran in 79, Islamabad in 79, and most recently, and in Arab Spring, of course, too. But what we saw there unfold was the physical security of a lot of our facilities just kept the bad guys out. So if your physical security measures are good enough, you can keep the bad guys out. And then it's just a matter of time before help gets there. Yeah. Um, uh, I've got you for one more minute. Um, I would like to have you on again, if you would be if you would be so kind to, to come back on my podcast. Um, also, do you have any form of podcast? I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I do have a podcast that um, you could find on, on our website, uh, which is at Ontic, O-N-T-I-C. And that's I'm the executive director of the Center for Protective Intelligence, where we study uh all kinds of physical security and protective intelligence issues and so forth. And uh, so um, I appreciate the ability to, to, to plug that on your podcast. Absolutely. It's very kind of you. Uh, 
But uh, yeah, we talk a lot about protective security measures and failures and protective intelligence issues and 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 so forth. Uh, so um, yeah, check it out. Would you be willing to to do another episode where we specifically talk about that? Talk about our center? Yeah, talk about everything you do, or is that classified or? No, it's 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 not classified anymore, Tommy. I'm okay. I'm no longer in that space, but I, I'm sure that's something we could work out. That would be amazing. I would love to because obviously, again, I know I gotta let you go. His book Under Fire will be uh, in the description and sticking in the top comment. I love reading books and I love kind of yeah peppering the the author with questions, but I'm also finding I do love sitting here and just being schooled in the most polite sense of the word. As a biology major, this is something I know nothing about. I would be honored to have you on again and just have you just just start schooling me. Just take me to school. That would be awesome. My pleasure, Tommy. And uh, I thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Thank you, sir. Mr. Fred Burton, again, everybody, the book, Sticky it in the top comment, will be in the description. It's awesome. It's terrifying. It certainly doesn't work as a recruitment pamphlet for me, at least. It is <laughs> perhaps the, the opposite. But I've kept you longer than I said I would let you go. So, Mr. Fred Burton, thank you very much, sir. Well, remember, Tommy, that the world has always been a dangerous place. Yeah, yeah. And it's men like you allow that stuff to happen. Maybe I should uh, learn my position that's behind a screen in a, in a safe room. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, sir. Bye-bye.